wondering how many, uh, how many men here are married? Raise your hand. How many of you are close to getting married? Then you'll appreciate this next because at this church we try to give you a lot of different things to help you grow. So what does a smart man say? Somebody said, yes, dear, that was close. That was really close. You're in the spirit of the advice. A smart man begins his statement this way. My wife says. All right. Um, so uh, last week we uh, uh, studied Romans 6, verses 15 through 19. It's part of this series practicing the new you, which is this part of the Roman study that we've been going through for some time. And, um, okay, uh, I'm going to ask him to put up the first slide. There used to be something here that I could see. All right. It's not, a, okay. So the first slide uh, now here the lesson is we're not going to be able to live, uh, commit sin without consequences because sinning brings death in all its forms, now and forevermore. So I'm going to read through the passage now. We're doing the next set of verses, 20 through 23. It says, uh, for when you can read along with me on the slider in your bulletins, for when you were slaves, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So hopefully from last week's study as a short review, we learned two things. First, sin leads to bad consequences, but righteousness leads to good consequences. And second, we must become slaves in order to be truly free. Therefore, we must yearn to be slaves to Christ, who is, in fact, our righteousness. This week, we continue that theme by building on it in the following way. We can't sin without bad consequences because sinning brings us death in all its forms and forever. Now, this re week requires just a little bit of talk about heaven and a little bit of talk about hell. So don't tense up uh, when we talk about hell. We're just gonna talk about it a little bit. Uh, before you tense up, I want you to wait through the entire sermon because the point of Paul's letter here is to cause the Romans and all believers to rejoice. Not to hang their heads and go, woe is me, but to rejoice. Um, I know hell and rejoicing don't seem to belong in the same sentence, but just hear me out. So let me turn to slide number two. Bam. There are four kinds of death. 
at least four kinds. The first kind is physical death. Let me give you some passages from the Old Testament that are very interesting to show this. Of course, we have all know in our lives that there's physical death. We've all been to funerals, and at my age, we go to more funerals than weddings. So I'm going to read a little bit from different passages in Genesis chapter 5, and I want you to listen to how they all end. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 107 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And that's the theme throughout Genesis chapter 5. It tells how long these people lived, were extremely long lifespans, including Methuselah, who lived longer than anyone, and they all end with the same words, and he died. So physical death is the first kind of death. The second kind of death is spiritual death, and that's what Adam and Eve experienced first in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed God. They didn't realize it, because, as you know from the story, Adam watched Eve eat the forbidden fruit as he stood nearby to see whether she would drop dead. He was a loving husband. And when she didn't drop dead, then he ate. But as soon as they both ate, they were ashamed of their nakedness and they hid from God. That is spiritual death. But when we run away from God, when we hide from God, when we recognize that we ourselves have created a breach in the relationship God created for us when he created us. The third kind of death is when we cease to care about another person at all. We say that person is dead to me. I have been watching on YouTube the testimonies of various Muslims who have converted to Christ. And they all have a, one, a common thread. That is, when they convert to Christianity, their family says to them, you're dead to us. I had that experience in my own life when um, my father did something. I won't go into the details. But I used to idolize my father. And one day riding in the car, he said something to me. I was 16 years old. And when he said that to me, he died. I ceased. It's like you puncture a balloon. All regard, all respect, and all affection just left. I was sitting in the car. He certainly didn't know what happened. But for the next 20 years or more, I never thought about my dad, never called my dad, never did have any interaction with him. He was dead to me. And finally, the fourth kind of death is a form of existence that's so terrible that a person yearns for death, for oblivion. It is life that is not life. 
It is sentient existence without any happiness, peace, love, companionship, well-being, health, etc. All the things that we think of when we think about having a good life, when we have this kind of death, all those things are gone. We don't experience them. We don't regard them anymore. Another way of describing that is that death is hell. Or another way of saying is living forever without God. More on this issue just a little bit later. So sinning brings death in all its forms. There's a physical death. There's a spiritual death. In many ways, God becomes dead to us or we become dead to some other person or they to us. And we undergo a kind of torment about something we've done that either we have faced up to or we don't want to face up to, but whatever it is, it is sapping us of all joy, of all the stuff that makes life worthwhile. So that if you eat a steak, you might as well be eating cardboard. If you see a comedy, it might as well be a dirge. So, um, When I say sinning brings death, or when Paul says sinning brings death in all its form, of course, this is horrible news. But Paul is trying to bring good news. And that is that Christ brings eternal life. And Paul is contrasting sin that is not covered by grace and the sin that is covered by grace. That is a person who has not given his or her life to Christ and a person who has. The sinner, he contrasts these persons with the Romans to whom he is writing who had, in fact, received Christ's salvation. And he's explaining to him what deliriously good news this is. In this portion of his letter, Paul is drawing a sharp distinction between life in Christ and life apart from Christ. Put another way, Paul is contrasting the life of the person who has received the salvation of Jesus Christ and the life of the person who rejects Christ's salvation. So in verse 20, Paul says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And that seems an odd way to phrase it. And what does it mean? It means that as slaves of sin, we felt no need, no compunction, no compulsion, no need to be righteous. We ignored the demands of righteousness and did what we wanted to do. So some examples. Righteousness says, don't objectify women. Treat them with respect. Sin, in contrast, says, chump that. Get as much sex as you can. You have needs. And by the way, there's a new porno website you should check out. Righteousness says, give your employer an honest day's work. But sin says, go ahead and take a nap. And also take that ream of paper home. Your employer is rolling in the dough anyway. Righteousness says, honor all men. And sin says, let me tell you this joke about black people or about Hispanics or about women. Righteousness says, 
love your neighbor. But sin says, well, who's my neighbor? And righteousness says, I'm a sinner. And sin says, they are sinners. So you're free as a sinner from the demands of righteousness. Its claims on you don't exist. You don't acknowledge them. You say, you can't tell me what to do. You have no claim on me. It's as though some young child is outside playing and doing something that he shouldn't do, and a man walks by and says, you shouldn't be doing that. And the child says, who are you? You can't tell me what to do. You have no claims on me. That's the sinful state. Righteousness comes and says, you know, you shouldn't do that. And we say, wait a minute. I'm free in regard to you. You have no claims on me. I can do what I want to do. But then Paul goes on in verse 21 to talk about this bad fruit that comes from sin. He says in verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So one of sin's fruits is shame. And Paul looked back on his own life with shame. Uh, Remember, Paul is the one who approved and was present when Stephen, the first martyr, uh, the first Christian martyr, was stoned. Paul approved. Paul zealously hunted down Christians. He hunted them with relish like they were animals. He undoubtedly approved the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And when Paul looked back on his life later as a believer, now that he's a mature believer in Christ, he says, in contrast to his life outside Christ, I'm the chief of sinners. And he had to get to the point where he could say, with regard to his past, forgetting those things that are behind. I press forward toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Shame is a fruit. You may recall the story of David and Bathsheba. David had sex with her out of wedlock and killed her husband. He hid it all. Nobody knew about it except his uncle Joab, who wasn't going to say anything. And then God revealed to the prophet Nathan what, Joseph, uh, what David had done and told Nathan to confront David. Uh, and when uh, Nathan confronted King David with his sins, David wrote Psalm 51, and in that wrote, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So Paul is saying to these Christians, when you look back at the way you used to live, the fruit that you grew then makes you ashamed now. He said, that's good, but don't stop there because we're going to put that shame under the cross. But he goes on to say that death is the ultimate fruit of sin not covered by the blood of Christ. Now, we know that 
life is not something apart from Jesus because Jesus told us, I am the, come on, act like you're a black church. You got to talk to me. You got to talk to me. I am the, the, and, you've all become soul brothers and sisters. All right, so life is Jesus. It's not a quality that Jesus has in abundance and which he shares with others. He is life. The Bible says believers have eternal life, but unbelievers have this unending agony. So let me explain a little bit about something that's called common grace. Because common grace causes people to think that the good things we experience in life, even apart from Christ, exist apart from Christ. Therefore, since they exist apart from Christ, we can experience them without Christ. Jesus said, look, for God sends the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So for example, from the worst sinners to minor sinners, they can all have really great birthday parties. They can have great college graduations. They can have a relatively happy marriage. They can have good health. They can have good income. They can eat a, a steak and it tastes good. They can hear music and it makes them want to dance. They can, they can experience pleasures in life regardless of their relationship with God. That's called common grace. That all these, and they can have things like courage and honesty and um, unselfishness. All these things exist only because Christ exists. And they are the disp dispensation of his person even to those who deny and reject him. So these good things are just an expression or an extension of Jesus' own personality. Without Jesus, there is zero light, love, peace, harmony, contentment, satisfaction, self-fulfillment, rest, beauty. I mean, you just name it. Hell, then, is the absence of Jesus Christ and therefore the absence of the qualities of his personhood, his personality. So hell has zero light, zero love, zero peace, no harmony, no contentment, no satisfaction, no fulfillment, no rest, no beauty. None of the things that are part of the divine being are their experience or will be their experience. Now, Paul says something interesting in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we're going to bring up a slide now. And this slide is going to show uh, the contrast between heaven and hell or replace heaven with the word life and hell with the word death. Either way, heaven is a gift. It's given. Hell is a wage. Heaven is something people don't deserve, but which they receive. Hell is what people do deserve, and that's what they receive. 
heaven, Jesus got what we deserve, and we get what Jesus deserves. Hell, people get what they deserve. Heaven, Jesus earned this for us. He did the wage for us. He did the labor for us on the cross. He paid the wages. Hell, people earned this for themselves. Heaven, the gift is given in full for eternity. Hell, the wages are given in full for eternity. Now, Jesus talks about life, eternal life, and eternal punishment a lot. I'm just going to give you one example, and the next slide will show it. It's Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, but it's kind of a long passage. I'm going to read it very quickly, and don't worry about copying it down. You can just write me, and I'll send you the slide, or just write down the verse, and you can read it. But let me read. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, eternal life and eternal punishment, when you read the Bible, both have the same word for eternal, and that is unending, forever, going on and on. Um, and the Greek word for life is zoe. It's, it's life as you and I want it, life in its fullness. What you and I would say, this is life. There's a different word contrasted with it, which is an existence but you and I wouldn't call it life. This is just existing. Um, and Zoe is connected with eternal life, and the other is connected with not life in Christ. So, let me tell you the following things. Hell is real. But don't worry, I'm, let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to 
you know, what do you call those things that fan a fire? Bellows. You know, and the fire gets bigger and bigger. I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do the other thing where we pretend that hell doesn't exist. Because Paul is doing something different. Because I think most of the Romans believe that there is a punishment that awaits. So I don't know myself if it's an actual place or a state of mind, as some people assert. However, I am sure of the following three things. First, the people who do wind up in hell, if we were to ask them, is it a place or is it a state of mind? If we were to ask them that question, they will rage at us because it's real to them. Second thing, I'm convinced that the chief regret for people in hell will be all their missed opportunities to know Christ. And third, I deserve hell. But Jesus paid the price for me, so I'm not going. So let me share a painful encounter I had recently. And I haven't even shared this with my wife. This guy confronted me. I know him. He knows me well. And when I saw him, you know he had that desire to cross to the other side of the street, to duck around the corner, to go inside a store? I could not avoid this guy. It was uh, too late. And he came to me and said, look, McCurin, you are a hypocrite. You say a lot, but you don't do much. You're inconsistent, you're prideful, you're selfish, you're lazy. And I stood there. Everything he said was true. I did everything he accused me of. I couldn't argue with him. And after he finished, I stood there and did four things inwardly. First, I admitted he was right. Second, I recited to myself Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Third, I just took a deep breath. And fourth, I turned away from the mirror and committed myself to trust Christ more. Friends, we are saved by grace. It is not only God's mercy to which we commend ourselves. You know, the scripture tells us that his, he is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. But as believers, we don't simply rely on the mercy of God. We rely on the justice of God. Now, why do I say that? 
First, I'm going to turn to the U.S. Constitution. Let me read the Double Jeopardy Clause from the Fifth Amendment. Prohibits a government from prosecuting individuals more than one time for a single offense and from imposing more than one punishment for a single offense. I broke it down into modern English. So let me read. That's double jeopardy. I can't be charged and punished for the same crime twice. Let me read 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Now, it struck me a couple of years ago that it doesn't say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Why just rather than merciful? Well, because Jesus has already stepped into my shoes. He has let himself be charged with my crimes. He has paid the penalty for my crimes in my place. So the person and the crimes have already been fully punished in Jesus Christ. So that when I go to him and confess my sins, it is not just going in mercy. God have mercy. We can go boldly before the throne of grace Because when Satan accuses us and tells us rightly of the sins that we have committed for which we have no argument, we can say, all that is true, but I cannot be charged with this crime. No penalty can be imposed upon me in eternity for this crime because my God has already borne it in his person on the cross. I'm pleading not his mercy. I'm pleading his justice. He will not punish me a second time. Hallelujah. So, life without God is total misery. It is the complete absence of grace. For those who live and die apart from Christ, This life that we're living now is as good as it will ever be. It will never be better. And and, and unless you think this is a small thing, I remember as a kid in Chicago going to the Museum of Science and Industry, and one of the exhibits there and still exists is the coal mine. And they put you in the, who's ever been on the coal mine at the Museum of Science and Technology? Am I the only one? Two more people. Okay. When you go in, it is pitch black. You cannot see. If you put your hand right on your nose, you cannot see it. That's how dark it is. And then it descends. And I remember we did this every year as kids in elementary school. We went to the Museum of Science and Industry, and every year I had to get up the nerve to go down the mine shaft. And when you're in that mine shaft, if something lightly touches you, it just freaks you out. 
you do not, nobody in the mine shaft ever acted cool. <laughs> we were all in the same boat, and we got in there, and all we did was shriek. Guys and girls alike, we just shrieked. Well, imagine being that for eternity. And you don't know what's touching you. You don't know what's that squishy stuff underneath your feet. You eat a steak, and it has no taste. You want to sleep, but you get no rest. You itch, but you cannot scratch it. Your, your sense of who you are is totally dis disintegrated. You have no sense of self that makes you stable, and this is who I am. You have no relationships. You have no companionship. It is the complete absence of all the attributes that God invests in us by his own will. And heaven is just the opposite. It is a life swimming in grace. And for those who live and die in Christ, this life is as bad as it will ever be. For us, it will only get better. Jesus' death on the cross bought for us, earned for us, perfect grace for all eternity. Instead of physical death, we have eternal life. Instead of spiritual death, we have fullness of life in Christ. Instead of relationship death, we have the full rights of sonship as male and female, and we have other people with whom we can rejoice, and we're really happy that they're there, although we may be surprised that they're there, and they're surprised that we're there. The fact is we can all rejoice that we're there. Instead of total misery, we have total joy and fulfillment, not for a while, but for all eternity. Instead of the absence of grace, we swim in an ocean of grace. We never reach the boundaries of his grace. We are in a state of constant, joyful exploration and discovery. It's like if you taste a steak, I'm pretty sure they won't have steak in heaven, but just bear with the analogy. Although I have made a request for ribeye, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. But if there were steak in heaven, and I have a thousand taste buds, in heaven I have 50,000. Instead of being able to simply hear music, I can taste it. Instead of just singing here, I can sing throughout my body, my hands, my feet, my liver. They all sing together. So let me close with this application. This week, consciously, day by day, thank God for the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And thank him now for the little bits of it you experience now. Love in your relationships. Peace in your relationships. A certain amount of good health. A home in which to live. What Friendships. Just thank him for the little expressions of his being that you experience and cause others to experience every day. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. that Jesus has paid the cross, has paid the price for us on the cross. 
so that he has earned for us this right to call you father, to be in an eternal and unbroken relationship with you. He has freed us from sin so that now we are under the compunction to obey you and to do rightly because we know it pleases you. Amen.